Happy New Year, everybody. It's great to see you. Great to have you with us as we begin today something that I believe is going to be way more than just the next sermon series. Uh, I believe what we're beginning today could be a spiritual journey um, that will transform our lives personally, but also transform us as a church. And so uh, I wanted to just kind of talk with you a little bit right here before we jump in on this. And I'm so glad you're here today on the first day of 2020, first Sunday of 2020, um, looking at uh, the first week of this, uh, because we've never really done anything quite like this before. What we're going to do is we're going to just follow Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And so if I were in your shoes, I would be kind of wanting to know a little bit, uh, why are we doing this? Like, what's the purpose? What's the reason? Where did this come from? And so if I could, I'd like to just talk with you a little bit uh, from my heart where this is coming from and why I felt like this was important for us to do here um, in the new year in 2020. Uh, three weeks from today, on January 26th, Frontline turns 20 years old, which is an amazing thing. Yeah, which is awesome. Uh, my wife, Carrie, and I have been here for 19 of those 20 years, and I am just even after coming through Christmas services a couple weeks ago, I'm just blown away at what God continues to do um, in and through you guys, the church here, and, and, and what his plans are. And so um, on the 26th here in three weeks, I want to encourage you to be here on that day. We are going to have a huge 20-year celebration of Frontline's history and talk about where we're headed. We're going to have a couple of special guests with us. And it's going to be a baptism service. We thought, what better way to celebrate 20 years than to have a, a huge baptism celebration? And so if uh, you know your next step is to get baptized, if you're ready to take that step and get baptized, we would love to hear from you on the screen behind me. Um, you can let us know that you're planning to get baptized. And I, I'm telling you, what an incredible day to get baptized. That 20-year celebration is going to be an incredible time to do that. And um, we're just going to blow the roof off this place. It's going to be amazing. But as we got closer over the last few months to this, uh, I just began to ask God and just seeking him and just saying, so what now? In our 20th year, starting this, what will be like the third decade of this church's existence, what do we talk about? What should we do? And just began to seek the Lord on that and our teaching team as well as, as our leadership team, we just began to discern from the Holy Spirit that what we were being called to do was just set aside the first part of this decade, the first part of 2020, and just give ourselves to following Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And literally what, what I'm inviting you to do is sort of put yourself in the disciples' shoes, follow along, see what they're seeing, hear what they're hearing, and kind of put yourself into the story and actually just follow Jesus. Now, why the gospel of Mark? There's four gospels in the New Testament. Why Mark? I'm glad you asked. Uh, the reason why we chose Mark is because Mark is, deals mostly with the actions of Jesus, what Jesus did. So you can kind of put yourself in these stories and follow along. And Mark, we believe, was the earliest of the four Gospels. So John Mark is a character that appears in the book of Acts, and we believe he wrote his Gospel sometime in the early 50s AD, so 17 to 20 years after Jesus' death and his resurrection. So John was actually, or I'm sorry, Mark was actually present for a lot of the things that happened in the gospel. And we believe he wrote his gospel basically from the preaching of Peter and the firsthand accounts of the other living 12 disciples. In fact, there's a place in uh, his gospel where Mark puts himself in the story. It's in Mark 14, there's this detail where Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers are coming to arrest him and the disciples. And there's this weird detail that says, a Roman soldier went to 
uh, lay hands on uh, on um, a young man that was there with them, and the young man tore out of his clothes and ran away naked. It's, it's this weird random, like you're reading it and you're like, why did I need to know about the naked guy in the Garden of Gethsemane? It's because that was Mark. He would, that was him. He was putting himself in the story. And I love that detail because it's as if he's saying, look, I was there too. This isn't just a story about the disciples and the way that they failed and the way they abandoned Jesus. I, I did the same too. I failed as well. I turned away as well. And so we see it through his eyes, through, through his experience. And the other thing that's so powerful about Mark and why we decided this is because Mark is writing to Gentiles. We believe probably in Rome during the great persecution that happened there about that time. And the reason we believe this is because he explains all the Jewish customs and he translates all the Aramaic expressions. So he knew he was speaking to Gentiles like us, uh, people who were not insiders to the Jewish faith, but people who were, who, who were outsiders. And as the gospel was being spread um, beyond the Jewish faith to the entire world. And so that's uh, why we're doing this. That's what we're inviting you into. Now, if I were in your shoes, the question I would be asking right now is, okay, how long will this take? <laughs> the honest answer to that question is, I have no idea. There actually is no end date uh, in sight in, on, on this series. We didn't put one on the calendar um, if you've been a part of Frontline for a while, you know we typically do like four-week or sometimes five-week long sermon series, and then we kind of uh, bounce on to the next thing. This is going to be different than that. Um, we are just going to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and just walk through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And so whatever the, whatever, um, the subject matter is going to be for that day, that Sunday, is going to be whatever happens next in the text, whatever Jesus says or does next in the Gospel of Mark is what we'll talk about that, mor that morning. So this is gonna be very different than anything we've ever done. And so I believe it's gonna have the power, if you allow it to, it could be the most spiritually formational thing that you do in this entire year. And so here's what I wanna ask you to do. I wanna ask you to engage with this. I wanna ask you to immerse yourself with us in the Gospel of Mark, to read along with us, and I'm gonna ask you to engage with multiple different opportunities that we're gonna have over the next several months. There's gonna be a weekly guide as well as a month-long devotional written from our staff that you can uh, get a hold of through the, the Zero Collective app that'll be available through there. Um, social media and, and other ways, there will also be some things to connect with. Uh, our small groups are also going to journey through this together. Material is gonna be made available. And so uh, as Sean was just saying a minute ago, this is the perfect time to get involved in a small group if you never have before, because it'll be a powerful way to engage with the content and walk through Mark together in a smaller group uh, context. So I really would encourage you to do that. Take advantage of these opportunities and just engage because I think God is gonna move powerfully through, through this time as we allow him to work and so um, we'll see what happens. I think this is gonna shape and prepare us for what God is gonna call us to as a church for the next decade. So with that being said, we're gonna start today in Mark chapter one. We're gonna look at the first 15 verses. And so are you ready? Yes. All right, you guys are ready. You're more awake than, th than the 930 service, which I love. That is awesome. So this is how... It all begins. This is Mark 1, starting in verse 1. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. 
He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be, and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, I wanna just take a second and hit the pause button on this and just help you understand a little bit of what's going on here. Um, so John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this passage in Isaiah 40. He comes to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah. And what he does is he's out in the wilderness and he's inviting people to come from all around. These are Jewish people from this area to come and to be baptized in the Jordan River. Now, what you need to understand is that at this time in the first century for Jewish people, Immersion baptism, which is what they're doing here, they're going down in the water and then coming back up in the Jordan River. Immersion baptism was only something that non-Jewish people did if they were coming into the Jewish faith. Okay, so it was an outsider's practice. If you were a non-Jewish person, you wanted to become a member of the Jewish faith, that's when you would get baptized in this way. So most Jews, the way they thought was, hey, I, I, if I was born into a Jewish family, and as long as I know the law and I keep the Sabbath and I keep the feasts and I make the sacrifices at the temple, I'm good. I'm saved. I'm in. But what John's baptism is indicating, what it means for him as he's preparing the way for Jesus to come, is he's saying, look, everybody has to come to God on the same terms. Doesn't matter what your pedigree is. Doesn't matter what your past is. Doesn't matter what you know, you would bring to the table in terms of your upbringing or whatever. Everybody has to come to God as an outsider, as on, on level ground. So if you think about this, this message should have been scandalous, maybe offensive even a little bit. And yet people are coming from all around this area and they're being baptized by John. They're recognizing their need. And in this movement that's happening, this is what takes place next. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and John baptized him in the Jordan River. So this is when Jesus first appears on the, on the scene. The very first thing he does is he gets baptized. He submits himself to baptism. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals and angels took care of him. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. So this moment where Jesus comes and the first thing he does is he gets baptized, 
What's interesting about the, the details that Mark gives us about Jesus' baptism is Jesus' baptism here in this moment is actually a callback to the original creation story. So in the Jewish scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, it all begins in Genesis chapter one with the creation account. So God the Father is creating, it begins with him creating the heavens and the earth. And the way that God creates the heavens and the earth is he speaks things into existence. Let there be light, and then there was light. He speaks the creation in existence. So at the moment of creation, God the Father is there. At the moment of Jesus' baptism, God the Father is there, and God speaks and Jesus, the son of God, is understood to be the words of God become flesh. And so just like Jesus was there in the original account with, with God's words, God the father is there, uh, then the son is there. And then at the moment of Jesus' baptism, this heaven opens and the Holy Spirit descends and hovers over him like a dove. In the original creation account, the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters. And it's this picture of watery chaos and God is speaking things into existence. So what's happening here in this moment is this is new creation language. Why it's so important is because God is saying in this moment, I'm doing a new creation here in the person of Jesus. The created world, if you know the story, it begins in this utopia, the Garden of Eden, just everything is the way God imagined, but sin has come into the world. Death has entered the world. And we all have this sense, don't we, that the world is not the way it should be, like the, we, we long for a better world intrinsically inside of us because we know our world is marred, it's broken. And so what's happening here at this moment is God is starting over with a new creation in Jesus. He's beginning again in Jesus. And so as you read this, as you recognize that, the question that comes to mind then is how do I get in on this new creation in Jesus? God is starting a new creation in the person of Jesus, how do I get in on it? What do I have to do? What, who do I have to be to be in on this new creation? And the very first words out of Jesus' mouth that we hear Jesus speak in Mark's gospel, Jesus says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is here. And then he says, repent and believe the good news. It's the first things he says to us to do, repent and believe the good news. And so what I wanna do is I just want to talk about both of those two things. We'll, we'll begin with the word repent. So Jesus begins, he says, the first thing you have to do to get in on this new creation that's happening in Jesus is repent. Now the word repent was not a new word to Jewish people. Repentance was something that Jewish people would do whenever they had sinned, whenever they had messed up. It's a, it's a posture of the heart. And in Mark's gospel, it's the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia actually means to change your mind. But whenever you see the word repent in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures, it's the word teshuva. And the word teshuva has a much deeper meaning. Teshuva literally means to turn or to return, to come back. It carries this connotation that you're going this direction and you stop teshuva, you turn around and you return, you come back to God. You come back to who it is he originally created you to be. That's the idea of teshuva. I, I'm headed this direction. I'm walking away and I turn and I return. I come back to God. That's what Jesus tells all these Jewish people to do, repent. I don't know if you, you get how scandalous and, and even offensive this would be. So for most Jewish people, the, I mean, the thought would have been, wait a minute, 
I grew up in a Jewish family. I go to the temple. I make the sacrifices. I observe the Sabbath. I know the law. I'm good, right? Like, I'm, I'm saved. You're, you're telling me I need to personally and individually repent, turn around and, re- and come back to God and be baptized? Really? Let me give you the West Michigan version, okay? Maybe that'll help. The West Michigan version of that is, I grew up in church. My parents took me. They baptized me as an infant. I don't remember it. It was, it was their decision, not mine, but it was done for me. And, you know, I try to do a good deed all, every, you know, once in a while when I get the chance. And, you know, I try to make it to church when I'm, when I'm not busy, maybe Christmas and Easter and everything. Like, I'm good. I'm all set. You're, you're telling me I need to personally and individually come to a place where I own and acknowledge my own brokenness, my own sin, and I turn around and I return back to God? Really? I've heard people say that oftentimes uh, when they talk about the gospel, um, the good new, for, for the good news to be good news, it first has to be bad news. There's this idea that the very first thing Jesus tells us to do is to repent. It's to turn around. It's to come back to God. Let me give you this illustration. Um, It's kind of like presents that we get at Christmas time, right? I hope over the last couple weeks that you, all of you had a chance to gather around the tree on Christmas or sometime in the days around Christmas and give gifts and open presents with family members. We love to do that around this time of year. I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes... Uh, certain presents require some humility in order to receive them. Maybe some of you got some of these kind of gifts. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Maybe you open a present from your friend and it's a diet book. (laughs) And then your spouse gets you a treadmill. And then you open a gift from another friend and it's a membership to a gym for one year. There's a message here to these kind of gifts, isn't it? I call these kind of gifts a chocolate-covered turd. That's what I call those. (laughs) It's this idea that it looks great on the outside. Oh, thank you. But until you bite into the chewy center and you realize, wait a minute, this is saying something about me, isn't it? In In order to receive the gift of a gym membership and a diet book and a treadmill, in order to truly turn to my spouse and my friends and say, thank you so much and truly be grateful for those gifts, I have to embrace a truth about myself, don't I? Apparently, I am a fat, unhealthy person <laughs> who needs to get in shape. That's how my family and my friends see me, right? The, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is kind of like that kind of a gift <laughs> in a way. It's, in order for it to be good news, in a sense, it's bad news first. It begins with this idea, Jesus starts out with repent. It begins with taking a look at the condition of our heart and embracing a truth about ourselves. I, I just say it this way. You can't take away the offense of the gospel. You can't take away the offense of the gospel. The idea is that you have a need. Personally and individually, you have a need. No matter what your pedigree is, no matter what was done on your behalf, no matter what you grew up around, you have a need to be rescued, to be saved, to turn, to teshuva, to turn around and return, to come back toward God. Because of your sin and my sin, somebody had to die. So Jesus begins this message with this idea of, Repent. The most unloving, uncaring thing I could do 
is not tell you that because I want to avoid offending you. And so, as we think about where we're starting here, beginning of 2020, is there anywhere in your heart that you need to repent? Is there any place where you need to teshuva? You've been walking this way, you've been walking away from God and you need to turn and walk back, return back to God, take yourself back to God. You need to repent. You know what I've noticed about repentance in my own life? And by the way, repentance isn't something that you just do one time. And it's, it's, it's a lifelong thing of learning to turn and, and come back to God in areas of our lives. What I've noticed about repentance in my own life is that usually the things I need to be told to repent of are usually not the explosions of my life. Usually it's the slow erosions of my life that I need to repent of. In other words, like if I, when I blow up my life because of some character flaw, because of some bad decision I make and everybody else sees it and knows about it, usually I know I need to repent, right? Like usually nobody has to come to me and be like, yeah, Brian, you know, you really, usually when I just blow something up and ex something explodes in my life because of some character, uh, you know, explosion, I know it. Nobody needs to tell me I know it. Where I usually don't see it, is in those slow, steady erosions of my heart that take place. So over time, my lust goes unchecked to the point where images that are put in front of me through social media or Netflix or whatever it is no longer shock me because my heart's become hardened to that area of my life. When slowing down to really love somebody well, like my, a family member just takes too much time and I'm too busy and I'm too important, there's this slow erosion of my heart that's taken place. When I've allowed money to become my God, the most important factor of what makes me successful, you know, when injustice, when I see it in our world, no longer enrages me, it's time to repent. It's time to repent. Oftentimes, it's these, it's these areas. Is there anywhere in your life where there's an erosion of your heart that's happened? Jesus begins the good news of the gospel by saying, do a heart inventory. Where do you need to repent? Where do you need to teshuva, turn and walk and return back to God? Now, oftentimes we stop there. We, we, we kind of focus on the bad news that we're broken, that our world is broken, that we need to repent. But what I want you to see this morning is Jesus does not stop there. Jesus doesn't just say repent. He says repent. And then the next thing he says is believe the good news. Those, those two things are connected in his message. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus doesn't want us to wallow in our past, to wallow in our sin and in our shame and, and that kind of stuff. He wants, he, Jesus came to bring us a new hope for our future. I don't need a better explanation of my past and my failure and how I got here. I understand that pretty well. What I need is a new hope for my future. And so Jesus says, repent, that's the place you gotta begin it's the bad news before the good news. You've got to repent. You've got to come to this place individually and personally where you recognize your need, that you're, you're sinful, that you're broken. But then he says, believe the good news, which begs the question, what is the good news, right? What does that mean? What, what is the good news that he's talking about? The word gospel actually means good news. So let, let me tell you what I think we do 
or what we believe about the good news. And I think we do this all the time in churches. This is just the human response. This is what we do. Oftentimes, what we believe is that the good news must be that Jesus came to be our example, right? So I come to this place where I, I, I recognize my own sin. I recognize my own brokenness. Man, I need to teshuva. I need to turn back to God. And so Jesus has come. And the good news is Jesus has come to be an example to show us how to do it right, Right? We couldn't do it right, so Jesus is here to show us how to do it right. So therefore, if I just work harder and try harder, then hopefully I'll be able to get it right. And thank goodness, the good news is that Jesus came here to show us how to do that, right? And this is what we think. This is what we turn the good news into oftentimes. Let me give you an example of this. How many of you know what this is? Raise your hand. Come on, children of the 90s, unite, come on. Okay, well, most of you in this room know what this is. If you were around church at all in the 90s, or early 2000s, you know exactly what this is. If you were not around church at all in the 90s or 2000s, let, let me explain to you what this is. This is a WWJD bracelet. And there are different evolutions of these that were handed out, usually at youth groups. WWJD stands for What Would Jesus Do? That's what it stands for. And so the idea is that like at youth rallies, you know, you would hand out these bracelets and you put this, you know, kids would put these bracelets on their wrists. And so uh, I actually was, had just been a Christian for a very short period of time when this thing kind of became a big deal. And so I remember getting one of these bracelets that looked a lot like this and putting it on my wrist. And, um, and, and the whole idea was this, you were supposed to wear this bracelet. And so whenever you were tempted to sin, you know, it, it was supposed to be like a reminder. So let's say like you, if you were tempted to have sex with your girlfriend, the idea was that you would look at that bracelet and you would stop and say, wait a minute. What would Jesus do? And as a 17-year-old boy with raging hormones, it was supposed to stop you. And that was the idea. Now, now here, let me be really, really clear. What would Jesus do? That's actually a really great question to ask. It's not a bad thing at all. It's not a bad question to ask at all. In fact, if you are at a moment in life where you have a decision that needs to be made that's in front of you and you don't know what to do, what would Jesus do? <laughs> that is a great question to ask if that's the situation you find yourself in. Uh, in fact, I, don't th I think as Christians, we should want to be more like Jesus. We should want to be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's what we want. But here's the deal. What happens to a, a lot of us when it comes to the gospel is we only allow Jesus to be our example. And we think that's the gospel and that's actually not the gospel. Jesus didn't come to just be an example. He came to be a savior. And so what happens is when you accept Jesus as your example only, it's actually not good news. I have this memory. I remember being about 17, 18 years old, driving down the road and just taking that bracelet and ripping it off my arm and just throwing it out the window. Not because... I didn't like the bracelet or I didn't think it was cool or whatever. It was because of the intense crushing guilt that I felt. Because the truth of the matter is, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't do what Jesus would do. I couldn't even get through like the first hour of the day. I'd look at that bracelet and be like, oh man. It became like this shackle around my wrist. And that's what happens. If you only allow Jesus to be your example, it will not be good news. It will lead to total frustration and exhaustion and crushing guilt and shame. I have a theory. I actually think this is why so many people 
at a certain age, walk away from Jesus and walk away from the church and walk away from Christianity is because of this because they realize I don't measure up and they've only allowed Jesus to be their example. That's what they've assumed the good news must be is that he came, we were doing it wrong. He came to be our example. So now we know how to do it right. I better measure up. And the reality is they've never actually received the gospel. And we turn away in guilt and shame because we don't understand. Jesus didn't come to be just an example. When Jesus came, he didn't say, the good news is I am here. Now try to be more like me, will you? What would I do? That's not what he said. When Jesus came, he said, the good news is that I am here. I'm here to confront the things that you cannot confront. I am here to win the battles that you cannot win on your own. I am here to defeat the enemy that you cannot outrun and escape, even death itself. See, the, the reason that Jesus could do the things that he did, after his baptism, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and he overcomes Satan, he overcomes temptation. Then he goes and he goes around the towns of Galilee preaching the good news, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe. The reason Jesus could do those things is because of who he was and because of who he still is today. You can't do those things. That's why he had to come. Because of who he is, that's why he could do those things. And so who is Jesus? Well, God the Father already told us, right? In those verses we just read. At the moment of Jesus' baptism, when he's coming up out of the water, God the Father tells us exactly who Jesus is. This is my son whom I love and who brings me great joy. Listen, when you finally get to the point where you stop allowing Jesus to just be your example only and you actually allow him to be your savior, what happens is that identity that was spoken by God the Father to Jesus actually gets transferred to you as well. So what God says about you is this is my dearly loved son. This is my dearly loved daughter who brings me great joy. And when that happens, when you get that identity in your life, what happens to you is you actually become unstoppable, truly. Because your failures are not final. Your setbacks, your, your, your sins, the, the ways that you fall short aren't the end. They aren't fatal flaws. They're opportunities to learn when you encounter situations that are bigger than what you can handle and you don't know what to do, those are opportunities to teshuva, to turn, to turn around and to return back to God and to allow him access into your life in those moments. When you allow Jesus to become your savior, nothing, literally nothing can stop you because he has done it on your behalf. He's taken care of it on your behalf. So what do we do with that? Christmas was such an incredible time. We saw people walk through this door, many people at all three churches and take this step to say, I wanna allow Jesus to be my savior. And so what we're invited to do when we allow Jesus to be more than our example, but to allow him to be our savior is what I wanna invite you to do today as we reflect on these 15 verses is transfer your debt totally to Jesus. Transfer your debt totally to Jesus. This is what that means. 
What that means, when you transfer your debt totally over to, to Jesus and you allow him to be your savior, what that means is that your failures now belong to him. Your situations that are too big for you to handle and that are crushing you now belong to him. So you, your job is to shuva, to turn, to return back to him, to allow him to enter into that with you and to carry that burden with you. And when you begin to experience that, that's the spiritual life that Jesus invited us in. That's what it means to walk with Jesus. That's what it means to allow him to, to guide you in your life. Later, and we'll get to it later, Jesus makes these statements. He invites people, he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He didn't say, hey, I'm come, I've come to lay a heavier burden on you. Try to be more like me, try to measure up. He came and said, no, I'm here to invite you. I'm gonna do it on your behalf. And the invitation is, come alongside me, transfer that debt to me, transfer that burden to me, allow me to carry it, it's too heavy for you. The reason I came is because it was too heavy for you. And when we begin to walk in that, when we begin to recognize that, we begin to live that as our daily experience, what happens is we experience a peace that nothing else in this world can bring. We experience a joy that nothing else in this world can bring. Death itself loses its sting and we have hope for our future. And that, my friends, is good news. Would you pray with me? So Jesus, this morning, we just wanna do exactly what you invited us to do from the moment you first spoke. God, if there's any place in our lives where we know we just need to repent, we need to acknowledge the truth about where we're at. Maybe it's not an explosion, maybe it's just an erosion. We've walked away, we've allowed our hearts to become hardened. And uh, maybe this morning we just need to turn to Shuva, to repent, to come back to you, to recognize our need, to recognize we can't do it on our own, to recognize there are some things that are too great for us to bear. And so this morning, Jesus, we allow you to be more than just our example. We allow you to be our savior. We allow you to enter in. We offload the pressure, we offload the burden to you. And we say, Jesus, this morning, would you do what only you can do? Thank you for the good news that you came to be way more than just an example for us to follow. You came to be a savior. So we allow you into that space in our lives. And so God, the, the failures of our lives, the heavy burdens, they are yours. We transfer that debt to you and we just say, Jesus, would you guide us? Would you lead us? Those things are yours now. And we look to you for how you're going to steer us, how you're going to lead us. And God, I pray that for each one of us, that what we would experience as we follow you through these stories and this, these encounters over the next, however long it's gonna be, um, I pray that we would truly encounter you, Jesus, that we would truly encounter the good news that really, truly is good news of the gospel. And would you allow it to form us and shape us? We love you, it's in Jesus' name, everybody said.